Hey, uh, you know, I, I have another thing that I want to uh, express gratitude for um, on behalf of Living Hope. As you know, uh, at the beginning of the year, we talk, started talking about Love Honduras. And what that is, is this, for those of you who are new, um, there is a village, uh, a, a town called La Paz, and it's a specific village there. And, and we had determined um, by the direction of God that we're going to help build and plant a brand new church. Uh, we took an offering for three weeks, and we raised beyond what, we, what was needed. And uh, we said that we're going to help uh, build and plant a new church. And in January of next year, when they have children gathered, we're going to be sponsoring those kids. I got a, um, we got an update from the pastor of that church plant. And let me read you just a short excerpt, and you can find a fuller letter online. And Pastor Norman says, exciting progress has been made at the church plant, and this is the name of the church, Iglesia Santidad Bola Granja, and that's in La Paz, Honduras. Currently, the new church has 22 adults attending along with 32 children. There have been four professions of faith in this church during the last two months. We're happy to announce that the construction of the church building is in its third phase. The main walls of the building have have been raised. We praise the Lord because the construction schedule has not been interrupted. And we appreciate the support of all who are involved in it. La Granja community residents are anticipating with excitement the upcoming opening in a couple of months. And they are stunned to see construction's progression. As a pastor, I feel blessed to see what God is already doing in the lives of adults and children through the prayer groups. I'm expecting to see how the upcoming Child Development Center will bless the lives of children and their families. We bless the Living Hope Community Church members. We bless Pastor Steve and his family. And we bless the visitors that honored us with their visit last month. It was such a rewarding experience to share with them. We look forward to have them during the church opening and to share with them along the way. And, you know, this is just a prayer meeting right now in this place, in this very impoverished area in uh, a poor country of, of Honduras. And, and, and this, this update was written specifically to you, the church family, and they're grateful. And they know that we're support, praying for them, supporting them, and, and I'm, I'm, we're, they're looking forward to gathering the kids and us sponsoring them as well. And then we'll be a, a, a spiritual center for that town. So thank you so much for that. And I am grateful for this. Um, we've been in a series called Blessed Assurance. And I'm going to ask a question, or it is a question that all of us ask ourselves some point in time in our lives. And the question is this, who am I or who are you? It's an important question uh, because it affects so much of your life. You know, when someone introduces you and this is, or you introduce yourself and I am, how do you develop your identity? How do you explain your identity? I think one of the ways that we oftentimes describe ourselves or assign identity is, are those areas of life where we have absolutely no control over, right? And so we de- describe our gender our nationality, our, our height maybe, uh, our country of origin, um, you know, our parents, things that we had no control over. And it's interesting how some people, some of us, take those things that we have absolutely no control over and fe- feel very, very proud 
You know, I'm, I'm six foot four. I'm very proud of that. Well, you had nothing to do with it, I want you to know, right? And there are other times we become very discouraged at, at, at qualities in ourselves that we had no control over, right? Um, but that is one of the ways in which we describe ourselves. Another way in which we describe ourselves are the things that we've done or things that we haven't done. And so it's interesting. We can be a full-grown adult. We're in our 50s. And our greatest accomplishment is, is an athletic endeavor that we had in high school or a college that we still affiliate ourselves with. Uh, and that happens really uh, when you were 16, 17, and 18 or a job that we have or our portfolio that we've gathered. And so we say, you know, I am, uh, uh, you know, in my profession, I went to so-and-so uh, Etc. I live so and so place. What we don't talk about in terms of identity, although we have it in our soul, is not simply what we've done, but what we haven't done. Not we we don't we talk about the school we graduated from, but not the schools we've been rejected from. We talk about the jobs that we have, but not the job that we wanted to have but couldn't get. We have in our hearts all of our biggest failures. We don't talk about it, but it does affect us in many ways, and it becomes a part of our identity. A third way in which we often um, prescribe our identity are relationships. You know, we say, I am a father, I am a mother, I am a husband, I am a wife, I am a friend of so-and-so. That's how oftentimes we introduce ourselves. I know that to younger kids, uh, little kids at Living Hope, uh, when I see kindergarten, and I say, who are you? I'm in kindergarten. I say, oh, you know, I'm Miss Christine's father. And for them, that is more impressive than anything else I hold identity to, right? But uh, those types of things uh, are dependent upon the person that we are related to. So uh, we may be a, uh, a husband or a wife, but uh, the relationship we have with that person or the quality of that person can determine, affect, impact how we view ourselves. We can say that we're a parent, a father, but if our, if our children are doing well, we feel better about ourselves. If they're not doing well, for some reason, that impacts our identity. Well, John has been talking about blessed assurance, 10 things that he wants us to be sure are true. If you have your Bibles, would you turn your Bibles with me? And our passage for today starts in chapter 2, verse 28, and it will span through chapter 3, verse 10. One of the most important parts of who you are, uh, one of the most important things that you ought to know, listen carefully, is not simply who you are, but who you think you are. It's not important just to know who you, uh, it's not important just who you are, but who you think you are. And because this is so important, John wants to make sure that you realize if you are here as a Christian, the blessed assurances, he wants to make sure that you understand you are a child of God. And, and he talks about it in three ways. You are a child of God, you, are, uh, you will be a child of God, and you should be a child of God. And so let's begin um, in actually chapter 3, verse 1, it starts with the word in the RSVC. 
It's, uh, he starts with a behold, hey, take a minute, stop what you're doing, pay attention to this, because you might just skip over this reality, because although you may intellectually know this, you need to take time to allow this to sink in your heart, see. And it is not that which you could not uh, control in your background, it is not your height, your 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 national origin. It's not what you've done or what you haven't done. It's not your human relationship. But, he, but John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He talks about something that you've received, and that is love. John says, I want you to slow down and realize that one of the most important parts of who you are is this, that you've received the love. And it is a great love, and it is a kind of love that is described this way, that we should be called children of God. Children of God. This is an amazing truth. He points to the Christian and says, one of the most important qualities about you, perhaps the most important identity that you need to remember and carry is that you are a child of God, a son of God, or a daughter of God. Now, I want to clear up a misunderstanding because I think that oftentimes in the, the spiritual faith world, we call everything children of God. So we, we say the rock is a ch- child of God, a Labrador retriever is a child of God, and you and I are, ch- are ch- uh, uh, children of God whether we're Christians or not. I want to clarify something, okay? The Bible speaks of all of those things as creations of God. Right? God created the laws of physics, the rock, the Labrador retriever, and the Christian and non-Christian alike. But it is only those who are Christians who are called children of God. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Every person is a creation of God, and in some way, God has a level of care for all of his creation, but God loves uniquely his children. And as Christians, we are daughters and sons of God, and this is your identity. And he calls you son. He calls you daughter. You know, I, um, when we think about parent-child love, I know as children, we, we intellectually kind of know that our parents love us. Yeah, 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 mom loves me, right? But it, I, I think that it is when we get on the other side of life, when we become parents, that we better understand the depth of a parent's love. Now, let me explain. When I was, uh, when my older daughter, Christine, was a junior high student, she was on the dance team at her uh, junior high school. And one night, um, one of her friends, her dance friends, called our home at night. It was kind of late at night, and my daughter answered, and, and what, what, oh my gosh. And then she hangs up and says, Abba, we need to go to her house. And it's a family we've, we know. We know the parents. We know the kids. We've had dinner with them, etc. We need to go. Why? My friend's younger brother is lost. 
And it's not just a younger brother. He is a developmentally disabled younger brother. Late at night, he's lost. I said, okay. So we changed, and, and we rushed to their home as soon as we could, and we got there, and there was sheriff where, uh, the sheriff was there. The uh, neighbors and friends have all gathered uh, to, to do whatever they could to help. And uh, I saw the look in mom's face. And, and she, was, she was as pale as she could be. She didn't have any time to be consoled. Oh, it'll be okay. She didn't want to chit-chat and ask you how you are doing. She had one purpose in mind. I need to find my son. It was late at night. I believe, and, 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 and she had been canvassing the neighborhood to try to find her son. And um, there was a, a small, uh, like a creek not too far from her house, and she searched there as well. And I believe that as a mother, a broken, fallen, sinful mother, she would have walked throughout the night, cold, barefoot, if necessary, through the dry creek bed in order to find her son. And, and you and I know, those of you who are parents, that sometimes we're just not very good parents. And yet, something inside of us tells us, if my child was lost, I may do something similar to that. How can I eat and go on? How can I live unless my child is found? I want to make you realize that this son of hers um, was not a scholar. He, I don't think, will ever become a scholar. He wasn't a standout athlete, musician, or a dancer. Uh, he wasn't going to you know, get state finalists in, in any of those categories. That's just not him. He, he can't be. In the eyes of society, he is just a, a, a being. But behold, see how great a love you are loved with because you are her daughter. And I don't think we understand that from this side of parenthood, but once we get on the parenthood side, we understand a little more. The parents, have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced pain? I mean, like pain because of your kids? When they're sick and, and your child is struggling, 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 and you do everything you can medically, but that child is sick and in pain, you're not sick, but it just hurts you. And you think, I wish I can, I, I wish I can absorb that pain. Have you ever had a time when your child um, is emotionally sick? Maybe they're dating the wrong person and she finally breaks up with that boy or maybe he broke up with her and, and you're thinking inside, oh, good thing. But when you see your daughter weeping, brokenhearted, you hurt and you feel like there's a part of you, you're rejoicing, but, but there's another side that's weeping with her. Have you ever had a time when your child is rebellious? They learn the word no when they run away. 
Or they, or they physically think, I, I need to get out of this home. And you know that, that your child is in the wrong. And you need to stand your ground as a parent. But as your child walks out, it hurts you. Have you ever had a time when your child is something, has done something terribly wrong and hurt other people? And your child has to pay the price of what she or he has done. And because for some reason that, 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 that child is your child, even though you know that your child was in the wrong, there's a part of you saying, if there's a way that I can pay the penalty on behalf of my child, I will do so. Do you realize that when your heavenly father says to you, that you have been loved with the kind of love that a heavenly father has, that he would call you my daughter, my son. That when a son rebels and leaves home and says, I, I can't wait for you to die, give me my two-thirds of my inheritance, that that father, though angry, at the sin of the son, still waited patiently at the porch, waiting for the day when the son would return. Do you realize that, there, that our heavenly father, though God realizes that we were in the wrong and we sinned against our heavenly father and against others, when it's time to pay the penalty of our sins, our heavenly father, your heavenly father says, I hurt for you and I will pay the penalty on your behalf. Do you realize that the love of a parent will say that no matter how rebellious, no matter how, how uh, sick, and no matter how broken we are, a parent says, you can come home anytime. This is your home. That you are not homeless because you have a heavenly father. Romans 8, 14 and 15, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship when, he, when we cry, Abba, Father. You know, and unfortunately, even when as, as I talk about this and, and the story of this mother who's searching for her son, unfortunately and painfully, some of uh, you have grown up in situations that go, wait a minute, that, what that mom did for that son, my parents did not do for me. My parents did not love me in that way, and I felt rejected, abused, or alone. But I want to tell you that something inside of your soul tells you, but I, I, I need to be loved and accepted in that way. I need someone to say, you're welcome home anytime. But I want to let you know that your heavenly father extends that invitation to you. That you are loved uh, by your heavenly father, even though oftentimes earthly parents fail us. So the first thing that I think we need to realize if you are a Christian is this, that you are or we are children of God. That that's our present reality. That's our, that's our core identity more than anything else. And secondly, as 
the implication of that goes further and says we will be children of God. We will be children of God. You know, even as a son of God, as a Christian, I sometimes don't feel like a child of God. And the reason being is I don't act like a child of God at times. I don't live like a child of God at times. Oftentimes, I look at non-Christians, and they live more morally, more righteously than I do. Or I look at my life years past compared to now, and oftentimes I compare my life and go, wait a minute, I'm not necessarily more righteous and holy uh, than before. I want you to go to chapter 3, verse 2, beloved. And it's that word again, I, I, you know, you are loved. We are God's children now. So he reiterates that present reality as Christians. You are, we are now children of God. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But, but it's interesting. And he talks about a current reality, but then he also talks about a future, a future that is unknown, not yet determined. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's not clear as to what we will become, but we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because at that time, we shall see him as he is. Now, uh, you know, the, we, we had uh, John and Anna, and they had uh, a pair of babies here. And, and Ian and, and Ellie are fully children of their parents, right? Eight weeks old, they're fully children. They're, 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 they're a son of their parents, they're a daughter of their parents. When they turn 20, they're not any more or any less children of their parents, right? Okay. Now... Um, I, you know, sometimes, you know, my wife and I, we would visit uh, new babies at the hospital. My wife is, you know, she's amazing. And, and I think sometimes just women have this uh, sense and, oh, you know, that, that, that baby, she looks just like her dad in the ear. <laughs> you know, but, you know, just like the mom in the eyebrow. Like, what? <laughs> you know, eyebrow, you know, like, and then she would describe. And then I said, I, you know, and she would describe my daughter's eyebrows, and I, got, I have no idea that eyebrows are different. Right? And it's interesting, even as babies, sometimes you can pick out features or characteristics that their parents, biological parents have. Right? Um, I, I can't tell. They, they all look alike to me, the babies do. But I can tell that as the babies grow up, they begin to imitate their parents, act like their parents. Uh, And you can see certain traits coming out of them. And you see a little boy running around rebunctiously, and the parents are like, oh. And I I say to the dad, hey, hey, you were like that, huh? When you were growing up. Yeah, God's punishing you for what you did to your parents. (laughs) Is that kind of how it is? Say, like, oh, my child is so strong-willed, so stubborn. Yeah, just like, you know, you, right? Um, it's interesting, though. Um, one of the uh, blessings that I've had in terms of just being at this church for a long time is seeing babies grow up. Seeing babies grow up, 
and becoming more like their parents in so many different ways. And, uh, you know, oftentimes it's DNA, it's biological, but I think so many other times it's when the babies, when the children are continuing to behold their parents. And so even uh, adopted children I see, from the moment that they're adopted, they're fully their parents' child, right? They have all the privileges and love and, and commitment that the parent has to that child. But it is as the years go on that that adoption, the adopted child becomes more and more like the parent. So they root on the same teams that the, the dad roots on, and they go, ooh, to the other teams that their parents dislike. Uh, they take on certain mannerisms, like, ah, oh, if that's what the parents do, the dad does, that's what the child ends up doing. And it's interesting, you just, they, they dress, they eat, and they sound like their parents after a while. And, and it's because, I, I, I think it's just the children are beholding their parents and, and, and are getting imprinted by their parents. At the moment of salvation, and theologians call it justification, we become children of God. We are loved as a child of God. But as we continue as our lives as children of God, there is a, uh, what theologians call a process of sanctification. We become more and more like our heavenly parent. But that is limited and that the third theological term that uh, theologians talk about is um, glorification. That it is when we behold Christ fully that we become more like him fully. So we are in this lifetime becoming more like Christ, but we are still yet far from whom we will become when we are able to behold him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, Lo, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And we shall change. And what is an enigmatic state of the Christian is this. You know, we've been taught, and that this is true, that God loves us in our state of adoption, even though we were broken, sinful, uh, invaluable, in, in so many ways, God loves us and uh, adopts us and loves us um, as his own. And nothing will change that. He doesn't wait for us to go to church more often. He doesn't wait for you to tithe more. He doesn't give you a Bible quiz and say, okay, if you pass this test at an 85% acceptance rate, then I will uh, accept you as a child of God. He doesn't wait for you to be more holy. He doesn't wait for you to quit smoking or drinking. He says, I adopt you as you are. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But God loves us so much that he doesn't leave us as we are. He changes us. He says, behold me. The more you abide in me, the more you will change. And I believe, listen, a Christian, a child of God, welcomes that. A son of God says, you know, I am lustful, I have a temper, I am arrogant, but I would rather be like my heavenly dad. And so whether it's kicking and screaming, 
or gently guiding, God, would you change me? I think a son of God, a daughter of God, welcomes that. I love my Father, Heavenly Father, so much that I don't want to stay as I am, so contrary to who you are. But Lord, change me inside and out. And so that gives me hope. Though there are moments where I say, I've been a Christian for 40-some years. I have a degree, a couple of degrees in God's study. I've, I've, I've studied the word, I've read the Bible, I preach others, I preach to others. Why am I not any more holy and righteous? And I, there are times when I get discouraged and we become hopeless, but this gives me hope that as a son of God, my changing, my sanctification is something God continues to work in. That I am not homeless because I have a father, and I am not hopeless because I have a father. And thirdly, we sh- uh, should be children of God. We should be children of God. And this is the third implication of our identity as a child of God. Verse 3 of chapter 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that when he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and as he is righteous, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Oh my gosh. Do you see that? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay? Now, we read that initially and we think, okay, does this mean that any person who sins is not a Christian... But the, 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 the language, is we have to look at it carefully, and, and those who interpret the Bible uh, does a good job. And he doesn't say that no one who sins, but no one who keeps on sinning. That if your life is filled, characterized by rebellion, open, uh, uh, just unconscious rebellion against God, that perhaps the reason is because you're not truly a child of God. The question that should uh, be raised in all of us is, wait a minute, I sin and I sometimes continue to sin. I continue to struggle with sin. What does that mean? Does that mean that God is saying that I have adopted you, but unless you stop sinning on a regular basis, unless you become more righteous, you're only a half a child of mine? That you're only a quasi-child of mine? Here's Here's John's answer, verse 9 and 10. The language the Bible uses of someone who's a Christian is you're, you're a child of God, you're adopted by God, and then the third is you're born of God. Okay? Verse 9. No one born of God, born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed 
abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, he begins in verse 9, no one born of God practices, uh, makes a practice of sinning. So if you're born again, you do not continue, make a practice of sinning. And, and we, you know, we read right afterward the, the, the statement that follows, and we might expect uh, for John to say, well, uh, if you do continue to sin, you're no longer a child of God or something of that nature. But what John says is this. The reason why no one born of God uh, makes a practice of sinning is because God's seed abides in him. Because God's seed abides in him. The reason you, don't, you cannot, as a child of God, make a practice of sinning is because God's seed is in us. What is the seed? It is none other than the Holy Spirit. Tim Keller describes it this way. It's an imperishable seed. It's a divine nature. It's his spiritual DNA. Because as it grows in you, you develop the family likeness. You become children of him. You develop family resemblance. It's his DNA. One of the great, great promises God's given to us is that the moment we are child, become children of God, we are adopted, and we, we, we start to change because we um, uh, abide in Christ. But not only that, the reason why we continue to change is because we have been given a seed. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been given a brand new set of DNA. Let me try to explain what... Uh, I mean by this. When I was uh, younger, my dream, like every uh, you know, most other boys of my age, is to become a, 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 a starting wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. I don't know why you think that's funny, <laughs> uh, but of course, along the way, I realized no matter how hard I tried, you know, even if I had you know, just uh, ultimate work ethics, I just wasn't going to get there. And, and the reason being is my DNA, right? My DNA was not going to allow me to have that kind of athletic potential. And so I gave up playing, uh, uh, the dream of playing for the Dallas Cowboys. And somewhere later on, I, I thought maybe I can be a, a basketball player. But, you know, that, that uh, you know, see, see, now you're not laughing because. But perhaps it's my DNA, no matter how hard I try. Of course, if I tried really hard, I could be better than what I am. Right? But let me, let me describe this possibility. What if, what if one day somehow my unique Steve Chang DNA with my personality, temperament, and all that was infused with the DNA of Michael Jordan? So I am both Steve Chang and Michael Jordan, dual DNAs, right? And I can go back to the age of five. What would I do with my life? You know, I, have, I think I believe I have the work ethics that Michael Jordan had. But, I, but now, once I have his DNA, you know what I would do? I would play basketball. I would get a scholarship offered to UCLA. And I would, re- I would revive that program, right? <laughs> Without the ball father, right? And getting involved. And, and I, I won't even steal sunglasses. Yeah. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it, what if, I, you know, if I was infused with Michael Jordan's DNA, I would maximize it. What if I was infused not with Michael Jordan's DNA, but Albert Einstein's DNA? At the age of five, you know what I would do? I, I wouldn't play basketball. I would read. I would study. I would let my mind wander. I would try to go to Caltech or MIT. I would walk barefoot in my socks uh, on the lawn, and I would study theoretical physics. I would study string theories, and I would, uh, I would study like, time and space, and I would read and dialogue and, and teach. If I had Albert Einstein's DNA infused into Steve Chang's DNA, it would change my outlook on life. But this is the problem that we believe that we are limited by our own DNA. And that's all we do. Oh, I can't play ball. I can't be smart because I just have my own DNA. Do you realize that when we became a son of God, a daughter of God, we have been infused within our, with our unique DNA God's DNA, the Holy Spirit. And we still act like our old self. We still act like this helpless child. I can't dunk, I can't think. I can't serve God, I cannot become holy. But being a child of God means, no, you have been given me to you. And I'm changing you. For those of you who are here this morning and and you are a daughter of God, a, a son of God, I want to remind you that you are not homeless. That you have a father who eagerly waits for you at home. And he calls you by name. And though you there are moments you're broken and rebellious, he always invites you back that you are not hopeless, although you may live a life of frustration, God promises that he's going to change you and he is changing you. That work is not done until glorification. And you are not helpless. You're not limited to simply who you are. You have the Holy Spirit within you. If you're here today and you came at the invitation of a friend or uh, for you, know, you, you, you somehow stumbled in and you've heard Uh, biblical teaching before, but you're not sure if you are a child of God, adopted into his family, born again. You thought that that being a Christian meant that you go to church and be good enough. I want to let you know that you will never be good enough. And if you try, it will be a lifelong frustration that is even for those Christians. But God somehow beholds you and says, I want to adopt you. I want to invite you into my family. And so perhaps even today is a day in which God invited you today to be here in this room, to hear this particular uh, message as you realize that there's a heavenly father waiting for you to come home. And if that's something that you decide, would you come talk to me or someone afterwards? And, you know, we have a treat because three of our young people did exactly that and they're going to give their story, and they're going to share with the rest of us their baptism uh, after this. Would you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you, Father, for loving us when we did not deserve love. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for changing us inside and out. And so, Lord God, we hold on to your promises. And Lord, we adore life, others, and our own emotions oftentimes tell us that we're useless, that we're failures, that life is difficult. I pray that you would continue to remind us that as Christians, we are sons of God, daughters of God, loved by an almighty, all-knowing, infinite Father who cares for us, always keeps our eyes on us. And we thank you for that. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.